Welcome back to a new season of podcasts called Tales of My Dead Heroes. The first episode takes us back to 1977 when I was 21 and went through the auditions for a Broadway show called Beatlemania. I tried out for the two greatest dead heroes of all, John and George. Well, I failed to get either part, but let me tell you about it. I'm Josh Allen Friedman. But just one thing before I do strike the match. Beatlemania was a Broadway musical review. Not the Beatles, but an incredible simulation it advertised. It ran from 1977 to 1979. The lookalike band on stage did about 30 numbers chronologically through the years. It was produced entirely without permission or cooperation of the Beatles' own Apple Corps. The Beatles were, of course, merchandised, franchised, and bled to death by every known variety of hucksterism. Without their involvement or approval, thousands of pigs fed at the trough. Beatlemania the Broadway show was conceived by two corporate rock business managers named Steve Lieber and David Krebs, the guys behind Aerosmith. But was Beatlemania really that bad? It sold out at the Winter Garden on Broadway and seemed to make everybody happy. By 1979, after two years, the show's producers were ordered to pay $10 million in damages to the Beatles' company, Apple, which temporarily put the brakes on this juggernaut. The show itself related flashpoints of the 60s to Beatles songs by means of slide and film projections behind the live group. Some of these events were out of sync with the songs date-wise. For instance, when the group did Can't Buy Me Love, the backdrop showed clips of cops beating protesters at the Chicago Democratic Convention, which happened over four years later. That's the difference. It's the 60s. Just put it in, you could imagine the producers saying. The critical reception of this show from Broadway theater critics was nearly unanimous. Most called it, quote, an atrocity. So in 1977, when I was 21, I saw a casting notice in Variety. Seeking Beatles lookalikes. Singer musicians. It was for the upcoming Broadway replacements. Now, like a lot of us, my very bones developed playing Beatles songs. It was at the cellular level and DNA of my entire childhood. Now, I will point out that the songs you're about to hear on this episode are all me on practice cassettes when I was a teenager in the mid-1970s. But now, at age 21, I had been playing hard rock, funk, and jazz. I'd already been a young hippie at the Fillmore East. I was into Jeff Beck and the Mahavishnu Orchestra. But still, who wouldn't want to be a Beatle on Broadway? I called the ad. 
I'd like to audition for John Lennon. The woman who answered asked, Can you play bass, guitar, and piano, and do you look and sing exactly like John? I could do all of that except the piano, I answered. I'm sorry, the Johns have to audition at least one song on piano. Just a minute, I said before she hung up. If you get a great John, can you just teach him a little piano? I could probably pick up the piano parts in a few weeks. She said, Look, do you know how many guys swear over the phone that they are John Lennon? They think if we just like their voice, we'll hire them? We're not just looking for good Lennon voices. We're looking for someone who looks, sounds, stands, breathes, and smells exactly like John Lennon. You want to learn a piano song? Call back. I'll do that. She'd obviously been through thousands of Johns who didn't smell right. Now, this was 1977, and Lennon and the Dakota were four blocks away from my apartment. It was the summer of Sam, the blackout, and the Bronx is burning. I contemplated a few piano lessons, which I've still been meaning to do someday, but then decided I'd call back for George. I hold up for a month or two and dug back into the roots of my childhood. I went over every Beatles song, on up to George's first album. practice some more, relearning everything I'd grown up with. full of George songs to audition with, then called back and secured an audition. It was at SIR Rehearsal Studios on 54th Street. The place looked like Night of the Living Beatles. There were over a hundred milling about, and these were just Wednesday's tryouts. Most of the Johns wore granny glasses. Some had Sergeant Pepper mustaches, others affected the rubber sole look. One John who flew in from Indiana with a knapsack and his wife had the Abbey Road Jesus look. A batch of Pauls chatting together in the waiting room looked strikingly different against each other, yet each was an accurate caricature. Fat Pauls, skinny Pauls, tall Pauls, short Pauls. A bearded one could have just as easily auditioned for Van Gogh. And sad, droopy Ringos streamed into the hall tapping their nervous fingers, all vying for the coveted seat behind the Ludwig drum set. Ringos were called up, auditioning on with a little help from my friends. There was even a black Ringo who they let go through the motions for one number. Then they thank-you'd him off stage. For a month, these tryouts would converge from all corners of the continent. The music director of Beatlemania was Sandy Yaguda. He'd been a member of 60s vocal group Jay and the Americans. 
collegiate Jewish kids who grew up singing doo-wop on the streets of Brooklyn and changed their last names from Rosenberg, Kirschenbaum, Yaguda, and Coopersmith to the Anglo-sounding names Vance, Kane, Dean, and Sanders. These were standard name changes in showbiz back then. So Sandy Yaguda ran the auditions. Thereafter, he'd oversee the mimicry of the band and the vocal harmonies. But I wondered what this gig felt like to him, being a veteran of Jay and the Americans, who'd had a whole string of saccharine hits, which is no small feat, and had been among the opening acts drowned out on American Beatles tours in 1964 when the audience screamed during the real Beatlemania. He seemed like a stressed-out, older music biz veteran, rolling his eyes at the auditions, but the guy still needed a job. On the audition stage were four leading candidates, a mock-up Beatles group. They worked the auditions each day. To open the proceedings, they ran through a segment of exactly what the show would sound like. And the band on stage was good, what they now call a tribute band. The leading John on stage could have just as easily been made up to portray Larry of the Three Stooges. The leading George, however, made me nervous because his profile was perfect and he wore a wig. Isn't he wonderful, said the girl holding a clipboard. The idea was to top the guys on stage. Every 10 minutes, the lineup changed. A series of Lennons were called up. Their vocals were not bad. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was the most common number, but it sounded kind of pathetic when they tried to banter in Liverpool accents. The leading John tried to be witty, counting to four in German. Now, it never works when you do that kind of imitation. You've got to add your own twist, like Andy Kaufman did with Elvis. Standing on the stage in the role of Paul was the star of the show, an absolute doppelganger, featured in all the TV commercials. He played yesterday left-handed. His name was Mitch Weissman, a Jewish kid from Great Neck. He was the standard bearer, the dominant Paul through all incarnations of the show. All the upcoming wannabe Pauls were gunning for him. Weissman even did his Paul act on an episode of the esteemed TV series, Joni Loves Chachi. Now, I went to summer camp with Mitch Weissman, Camp Laurel in 1967 and 1968. This was the same motherfucker who beat me out for the part of Conrad Birdie in Camp Laurel's summer musical, Bye Bye Birdie. I wanted that part, but it was fate accompli. He was three years older and played every day in a band at camp that did surprisingly good Beatles and Stones covers. He was also uncoordinated and pathetic on the basketball court. He never sunk one shot the whole summer, but girls screamed after him anyway. A group of girls in camp cheered him on from the side of the court as he missed shot after shot, and they would scream his name, Mitch! Now, ten years later, there he stood on stage. Since he was the top star of Beatlemania, he made a show of consoling other Paul wannabes as they were thank you'd off the stage. Hey man, I know exactly how you feel, he said to me, as I sat waiting for my number to be called. Imagine how nervous I am when I get up and play at the auditions. I'm really not allowed to make a mistake, he said. 
After several hours, I was the last George called. I quickly positioned the boom mic over my guild acoustic. As I stood and adjusted the vocal mic to my height, I felt the spotlight on my face. And then they gave me the go-ahead. George, number 63! But I defied the moment and went into a Lenin stance, legs apart, head arched back, guitar held up to my chest. If I fell in love with you, would you promise to be true and help me understand? Cause I've been in love before, and I know that love is more than just holding hands. I continued a Lenin medley of revolution. You say you got a revolution, well, you know. Norwegian Wood. Hide your love away. respectfully and clapped but then they said okay you're here to do George do that so I readjusted my stance to that of a sideways matador holding a cape I felt the spotlight again and had everyone's attention this was the moment you'll never know how much I really love you you'll never know how much I and then I went into Here Comes the Sun. Then I did something. The music director stood up and actually yelled, 
That is George. Sandy Yaguda gave me an enthusiastic pat on the back and instructed the clipboard lady to give me a callback. A callback! Here's a little background about my situation at that moment. It was the dawn of disco. I was 21 and working for a producer of gay disco events. I hated disco. I had previously worked for two years at Regent Sound Studios in Midtown. Microphone setup man, floor sweeper, the guy who emptied the ashtrays. I loved it. It was an entree into the music biz and Regent was filled with session musicians and orchestras recording albums around the clock. There's a chapter on that in my book, Tell the Truth Until They Bleed. Whenever I got a chance to play my guitar instrumentals for label men, they all said, fine kid, but you gotta put lyrics to it. This concert promoter and huckster, Steve Lyons, who visited Regent Sound, would chide me. What are you doing here, kid? They're wasting your talent. You should come work for me. So after two years, he lured me away with a promise to produce disco records. I became his assistant, his sole employee, for 75 bucks a week. But before we made the records, Lyons insisted, he wanted to produce a giant gay disco concert in a warehouse called The Outlaw's Ball and gay-themed beach party concerts on the Jersey Shore with Donna Summer and Gloria Gaynor, disco groups like that. This guy, Steve Lyons, had an investment deal with Media Sound, where John Lennon and Stevie Wonder recorded on 57th Street. Every week I was sent there to pick up five or 10,000 in cash. Maybe they were laundering it. I was told to carry it in a paper bag so it wouldn't look suspicious. Lyons didn't want to carry hard cash himself, he'd say, you do it, and watch out, people kill for that stuff. When are we going to start the record, Steve? I constantly asked. He kept saying, any month now, you just wait, we're going to make hits. But first, he had to use the money for one more fabulous gay disco ball. I was working 12-hour days, hammering together stages with mustached lesbian carpenters, pasting up truckloads of posters overnight with Lyons himself across Manhattan, and having to collect the advance ticket sales at clubs like The Anvil, The Mineshaft, and The Toilet. This was during the moment of gay liberation before AIDS, and the scene was out of control. I was a flaming heterosexual. So in the middle of all this shit came the Beatlemania auditions. Lyons was some kind of cockamamie empresario and insisted on coaching me every day. I had beatalized my voice practicing on cassettes, as you've heard. I took a voice lesson or two to raise my pitch, and Lyons would stand there like a conductor as I rehearsed. Maybe he was fucking with my head so I would fail and stay working for him at 75 bucks a week. I needed to get away. Lyons must have pissed away about 80 grand of Media Sound's money. No records were ever made. But that's a whole nother story. A few weeks later, I arrived for the finals. I waited my turn through the day and was finally called on stage into the George slot. Almost George, 
on stage, handed me his Epiphone Casino guitar. The neck was all greasy, and I couldn't make out the controls. I'd never played an Epiphone Casino. Of course, each cast member and understudy would be endowed with a full backline of gear, classic Rickenbackers and Gretsch Country Gentlemen's sitars and original Vox Super Beetle amps. This was all like candy to us. But there was no getting ready. The band just launched right into Can't Buy Me Love. When it came solo time, the Lennon guy plucked his half of the solo, but I lost sight of the volume and tone controls on the Epiphone. I couldn't get the volume up, and I bungled my part and choked the solo of Can't Buy Me Love. The guys on stage, including Mitch Weissman, just looked at the floor. Like an idiot, it never occurred to me to actually run through the lead solos with the band on electric guitar. I had just been practicing alone. Well, they kept me on stage for another song, I don't remember which, but I was already humiliated. Yaguda shook his head. Sorry, kid, but you don't really look like him. And then I became desperate and said, What if I get plastic surgery? There's a fog upon LA And my friends have lost their way Be over soon, they say Now they've lost themselves instead Well, there's always someone who will come in a half second ahead of you in the race. Like many times in life, I was Captain Almost. I remember our Little League coach. Word was he almost got signed to the New York Giants. My jazz guitar teacher, Joe Monk, almost got the chair on the Tonight Show Orchestra. But almost doesn't count. There was one guy out of all the Beatlemania lineups who did break out into a brilliant songwriting career. Just one. Marshall Crenshaw, who did the Lennon. He also played Buddy Holly in a movie or two. So there went another crushed dream. There would be many in that business called music. The last I heard, Mitch Weissman was working as a salesman at a Sam Ash music store in Los Angeles. Find me in my field of grass, mother. This is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. Our website is at blackcracker.fm. We'll see you next week. Brother, it is done.